Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I am Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show it has a sponsor. What? Cheshire Impact. That name sounds familiar. Who are these guys on a mission to help you maximize your use of Pardot and Salesforce? CheshireImpact.com. Bam. Now, my guest for today, very excited to introduce you. Very excited to even talk to him. And we talked the last time and we couldn't stop talking. It was awesome. He is an international speaker. He's a startup advisor, founder and CEO of Vism CX, former CEO, I believe co-founder of Anutis, author of Driving Demand, live from the mountains of Colorado, Carlos Hidalgo. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you, Casey? Good, sir. How are you? This is awesome. Yeah, it is. We, uh, I think last time we spoke, we had said that we could have probably spent a few hours, uh, you know, yeah. going back and forth. So we'll have to make sure that happens in person sometime, but I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. You know, that perfect conversation for a hike, right? That's right. There you go. Do some backpacking, get out in the woods. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's one of the reasons I moved to Colorado. Well, yeah, absolutely. I'm, New Hampshire, not bad, but we don't have the gigantors that you have up there. Yeah, right? it doesn't take you two days to hike a mountain or, or an all-day <laughs> excursion. You guys can do it in a day. So yeah. A different kind of beauty is what I like to say. And I grew up, I grew up in the Adirondack Mountains not far from you, so I understand that. It's one of my favorite places on earth. Absolutely, man. It, you know, come to think of it, you know, next time we chat up, we should go on a hike and we'll have a little, you know, the little microphones recording. You there know, we go. people hear like the, the breaking of branches as we, as we climb up something, you know, or Sign the trudging through snow. Sign me up. I'll do it. The clinking of carabiners and ice axes. That's right. And snowshoes. <laughs> That's it. Crampons, all that. Well, right. let's dive into the theme because you know, while we brought you here, we were finding a lot of people were stuck. They'd go invest in some technology. Marketing automation is a good example. And they'd use it like MailChimp. Sorry, yes. MailChimp. Uh, but they'd use it like a free tool. They'd use it like a lightweight tool, yet they've invested all this money, right. sometimes the time. And then never really fully utilize the thing. And so we realized they, they didn't have a roadmap. They didn't have a map for the hike. So yeah. we, we created one. And each month has been a different theme along this path. And really, we're getting to the point where now we're rounding out that journey. So it's, we're looking back and we're saying, okay, what can make it? What's the best way to trudge through this thing? We've talked about getting to know your buyers, talked about aligning with sales, building out drip campaigns, all these different things in due course. But I wanted to talk to you. And, you know, and I know you've got some, I mean, you've got books on this. You've got a real good sense of how do we really make sure that this stuff happens, you know? So mm -hmm. I want to pass you here. This is the official Thor's hammer from the show. <laughs> and, you know, what kind of myths can you smash right up front? Can you, you know, bogus strategy you've been hearing over the, over the days, over the decades, really? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the first one you nailed it is technology is not your savior. Technology mm. is not going, technology is not a strategy. And oh, I, I like that. I've seen the same thing over and over. I saw an article not long ago of how to have a foolproof marketing automation strategy. Marketing automation, any technology is there to enable. And if you mm -hmm. don't have a strategy, what you're going to enable most likely is chaos. Right. And, um, <clears throat> I think it goes back to, I believe it was Walker who published a study that showed only 3% of marketing professionals are stating they're getting the full value out of their technology purchases. What percent? Three. 
Jeez. 3%. So that is a staggering low number. I don't need to tell anybody that. Yeah, so, that's basically no one. That's like a few crazy people. Right. And, and <laughs> I remember, you know, going back early in my career where we didn't have this technology. So it's kind of been this California gold rush of let's go buy this technology and we can do this and we can do this and we can do this. And then they buy it and it's like, oh, well, wait, how do we do that? And so what I always advise is define your strategy first. Yes. Based on what that strategy calls for, go select the technology that's going to best enable that. So one of the questions I get, seeing as we're talking about automation, is, well, what marketing automation solution should I purchase? Right. My response is always, well, what do you want to do with it? Yeah. What is your, whether it's a customer retention, customer experience, uh, customer acquisition strategy, it really depends because you may not need the heavyweights of Marketo sure. or Eloqua. You may need something that is more nimble. Uh, so that's one myth is technology is not a strategy. The oh, other yeah. myth is that this stuff is easy. <laughs> and I have seen uh, executives, I have seen uh, consultants in this space with this, well, we can go live in 30 days. <clears throat> Reality is if you want me to, build a landing page, put a web form on it, blast out it to a bunch of names. Yeah, we can probably do that in under 30 days. Sure. But that's not of any value. Yeah. To really understand your buyer and actually buyers, because we know from CEB, mm -hmm. they've done great research around this consensus era in which we live, uh, to map out their buyer journey across all, perhaps up to seven in B2B individual stakeholders, to understand all the individual biases, to create the right content that aligns to the buyer journey, and then develop that process. Right. Anybody who says they can do that in 30 days or 60 days, and quite honestly, even 90 days, has either never done it, is mm. lying, or is trying to tell, sell you something. Right. And so this idea that it's easy, and then right hand in hand with that is we got to get this done quickly. We have to move fast. And I have a, a phrase that I talk with all of my clients about is it's better to do this right than to try to do this right now. And it's one of the, probably the questions I get the most is, um, you know, how, how do we speak to our executives? Cause they want us to do this super fast, super quick and, and get it out the door. Right. And that's that batch and blast mentality. And then probably the third myth. Um, and I've actually been writing a lot, um, haven't published anything yet, but kind of putting all my thoughts on paper is this whole idea that in B2B marketing and sales alignment is the problem we have to solve. Hmm. And as I continue to unpack that, what I'm really seeing is that marketing and sales alignment is a symptom of much greater problems. Interesting. Uh, part of that is we don't have a common view of the buyer across marketing and sales. Um, there is a disconnect on what roles each organ, each department should be playing in terms of the full customer arc and full journey. And we don't have common metrics or uh, common incentives based on our jobs and engaging the buyer. So I think if you can bring those three together and solve for that, marketing and sales alignment happens. And I think we're spending far too much time trying to treat a symptom and not the root cause or not the root problem. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I, we've, I bumped into this where it, it almost like there's two things we've talked about here. The idea of the technology. I love that technology is not a strategy. Right. That almost goes hand in hand with just the idea of 
of treating symptoms, symptomology, <laughs> something, you know, it's like, yeah. let's go after, you know, this random symptom with this random technology. Meanwhile, it's not even really the problem. Right. You know, right. or it might be the symptom of a problem. Um, have you ever uh, played hockey? You know, I used to play some pickup hockey when I was uh, a much younger man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Nothing formal, but I can skate and I had a stick. Well, yeah. So the reason I bring it up and people are like, well, how did you just go? Hold on, people. So I, I, I started playing pickup hockey when I got out of college and mm -hmm. all of a sudden my knee started hurting and I couldn't run anymore. And I was like, what's going on here? And that symptomology type medicine would say, chop off your knee, get a new one, or I don't know, you know, take oh. some drugs. Come to find out, a quick visit to a sports, sports medicine guy, tested your leg strength. Outside leg muscle, the one you used to do the skating, was like solid, makes you feel good. You're like, resist my hand. You're like, I can resist this all day. What do you right. got? But then he does the opposite muscle, the inside leg muscle. I got nothing, nothing for him at all. Yeah. Like I hadn't used that in years, right? right? And he's like, you've got an imbalance here that's pulling your kneecap. You know, it, it, one muscle's tight, one's loose, and it's just, it's pulling that thing, and that's why it hurts. So sure. all you got to do is strengthen that inner muscle, and you're good. And you don't have to chop anything off, you know? And it was yeah. like, it, for me, it was like such a, like, ah, oh, like, if I'd gone for the symptom, I would be in surgery right now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I had a, it's interesting you bring that because I had a sports guy that I worked with and he would always say the, the point of pain is not where the injury started. It's where it stopped. Oh, whoa. And so when we think about that, uh, you know, you referred to, you know, trying to solve a problem with a certain technology. We also do that with tactics. And so when we think about from a marketing perspective, um, and I just had this, I was just at a client earlier this week and we yeah. were talking about this channel. I said, in our consumer lives, when we're making a big purchase, so take, we're purchasing an automobile. Sure. We, we go online, we talk oh, to yeah. friends. I'm the kind of guy that if you're pumping gas and you're driving the car that I'm looking at, I'll walk over to you and be like, Hey, I know this may be a little weird, but do you like your car? I'm thinking about the same one in our minds. We don't go through this idea of I'm on a digital channel. And now I'm in the word of mouth channel. Right. As marketers, we treat our buyers that way. Like we have to have a social strategy, a web strategy, a digital strategy. Right. But buyers are multi-channel. So we should develop a multi-channel strategy, which includes all of those different tactics in a way that kind of surrounds those buyers. Or if you're doing ABM, those specific buyers in the account with our core message and that message and that interaction needs to be seamless across those channels. You know, it feels like the barn door swung a little bit where we got digital and we got more and more digital. We got automated. We got all this digital stuff. And when you're thinking about trying to track and even something more advanced, multi-touch tracking, you know, we give all this credit to different emails and digital touches. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I just came back from Dreamforce and sitting down and having a salad with someone can be so powerful for that yeah. relationship, for business, for future work together. It's like, how do you even, I mean, and you can go log that, I guess, in Salesforce, but there, it's almost like we've, we've gone so digital because it's scalable that we forgot that there's these, these untapped in-person other channels, to your point, that might have played the biggest, you know? We, we met, we bonded, we're now we're really gonna work together. Doesn't matter how many emails I do or don't send you, we're gonna work together, or maybe not, right? So it's like, yeah. you know, how do you, how do you include that in there? 
Well, we still, you know, at the end of the day, we still sell the people. We still sell yeah. and we market just because we cross the threshold of our businesses at eight o'clock in the morning or whatever time you show up to the office. doesn't mean we automatically go robotic. True. You know, we, we, uh, my, my good friend, and I'm, I'm sure you've, you've met or know Brian Carroll, who kind of pioneered this years ago with the lead gen for the complex sale book. Oh, okay. Yeah. A lot of groundbreaking work around empathetic marketing. And so what we have to understand is, and CEB has also done some really good research around motivations of buyers. And one of them is, am I going to get fired or, or what's the fear, you know, that whole fear factor, not the right. show, but the reality of <laughs> what is that factor of if I make this purchase? I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing more consensus buying is I want to make sure I'm covered that I'm not the only right. one on the line. But at the same time, we have to understand that sometimes buyers just have bad days, right? You, you've got in a, you got in an argument with your significant other or you spilled your coffee on the way to work. Never you, happens. Right. You've got that <laughs> other coworker who's playing political games or you didn't get the promotion, whatever that is. And I think we have to start to humanize or at least understand on the other end of that communication is a human being who thinks, who feels, who emotes, and really wants to experience, have an experience with the vendor that they're going to buy from. So it's not just about how, you know, uh, how, how targeted is our content, because sometimes it comes across as so robotic. We just launched with a client this week. And one of the things that we had talked about from a content perspective is let's write our content that a seventh grader could understand exactly mm, what yeah. we do. Um, and that's not to demean their buyers, but we just, we kept pushing that out there with this idea of let's get away from these big $10 words and just bring it down to a human level. Right. You know, it, I did a webinar two days ago and you know, even seeing it called a webinar and the emails promoting it just felt kind of yeah. so dry these days, you know? And, uh -huh. and, uh, so what we did is we used the zoom meeting kind of like this one and people could show their faces or not. It was almost like a meeting. I still had the power to mute everyone when the time came, but we had one of the guys on our sales team who was joining it. He played guitar as like the, <laughs> the, the opening music while people were getting their seats, you know? Oh, that's awesome. We were all on video. It was super silly. And it became a panel discussion. Yeah. It felt so much better than, at least for me, but uh, for other sure. people, they gave us feedback that it was just, no, oh, thanks for something different and fresh, not that slide death, you know? Exactly. Death by PowerPoint. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hear a lot about B2H, you know, B to human, right? Sure. Or really it's human to human, but it's a good point that, you know, understanding that they may just have had a bad day or something could, could be affecting them, you know, and maybe you can't necessarily measure it, but one of the things you can do is come bring it down to their level. I like the idea of that, the, the writing at the seventh grade level. I mean, what is Harry Potter? Is that, I think that's at like a sixth yeah, or seventh grade level, right? That'll be, hard. that'll be a question I'd have to ask my wife and oldest son, because I've just watched the movies. I haven't read you never read it. No, I watched oh, the movie. I, I did cheat. Yes. And I'm, I'm being told all the time, oh, the books are so much better. So much better. <laughs> I will take your word for it. Well, they, you know, they are. And I remember just breezing through the, I think I was in the college at the time. So wasn't uh, super young, but uh, you know how they just, I, I guess the words just flowed. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but the contrast to that, there's a, there's a really cool guy who writes in the financial space and um, I'll have to look him up. I totally miss on the name right now, but he writes these really cool theoretical concepts and, mm. and reading one of his blog posts is one of those things where you have to like, I'll go get a dictionary for some of the words <laughs> and I have to like read it like three times. Now he's not necessarily writing, writing for, maybe he's just writing for a different audience, but, right. uh, but I have to really stretch myself to, to get those concepts. It's fun. But at the same time, I don't read it voraciously because it's such a, you know, an energy burden, you know, as opposed to what you're talking about where, you know, don't make that the thing that the friction point is the fact that they know they're going to have to read your, your white paper three times to get the point. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you bring out a really good point is who is that individual writing to? If he's writing to economists and CPAs, he's probably using language that they all understand. Right, right. And, you know, it's it's interesting. My my younger brother uh, is not in B two B marketing. He's actually a pastor of a church in Denver. Oh, no kidding! So one time we were together, and I got a call, and I was on the call, and I hung up, and he said, "You know, I, I, I'm sure whatever you said made sense, but all I heard was wah 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 wah." He's not in my space, and if yeah. I was, if he came to my blog. And he one time said, you know, no offense, but I, I don't even follow your Twitter stream. And he's like, because I started and I'm like, I have no clue what he's saying. He's not in my space. Um, right. And so I'm not writing to him. So I think that gets back to how well do we know our buyers and our customers? And it's not about what I want to say. It's what do they need to hear? Yeah, well, I like that. And at what point do they need to hear it? So it becomes relevant and we can move from brand, which tells that story to customer engagement or even a buying process where now I'm trying to strike up a dialogue. Yeah, that was really interesting what you said there. Uh, by the way, I say interesting a lot. I'm going to create like a tip jar. So every time I say yeah, it, that uh, probably give it to somebody. I don't know. Uh, but what you said was not what I need to say, but what they need to hear. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we get so caught up, you know, when we do content audits, it's, I hear a lot of, oh, we have a ton of content. Well, the content is all about, well, we do this and we do this and our solution does this. And I'm seeing it even on the B2B sales front. Sure. Yes. Hey, our product does, do you have 20 minutes to sit for a demo? Right. Okay. You are just telling me that you don't read, you don't understand what I do as a, as a, I got one today on data science. Mm. Data science tool. Well, if you spent five minutes looking at my profile and looking at our company, you would know we are not a prospect for you. You right. would know that we are not a target for you. Right. So I think really getting that understanding, both on the marketing and the sales side. And if I can, I always talk about, especially in the context of demand gen, let's help our buyers make the most informed decision possible. Yeah. Whether, whether or not they buy from us, which is a real mind shift, especially for salespeople, because I want everybody to buy from me. Yeah. The reality is I don't know a sales rep alive who's got a hundred percent hit rate or close rate. And so if I can be the one that facilitates that buying process and even post customer that if I can facilitate that customer experience as an account manager, I'm going to have a customer. There's a good chance. The chances of me retaining that customer, mm. and expanding that share of wallet go up exponentially. 
this makes a lot of sense whether or not they buy from us you know being there we've often said even at cheshire like our why is just to teach teach a better way yeah and and sometimes we'll get pushback from sales saying like yes well we don't want to teach too much you know but those people don't get it it's it's no, we do. We, we teach and teach and teach. But we, the more you'll learn, the more you'll realize you don't know. <laughs> right. So, um, it, it, you know, I've often said when we teach, we win, you know, because really, we all win. It's like win, win, win. Um, because you're there just providing that information. And they're like, thank you for telling me that and teaching me that. Can you help me do that? You know? Well, and that, that's the thing, right? I mean, a lot of our clients, they all have day jobs. They don't have time to go out yeah. and do themselves. And I firmly believe if I'm, if I'm informing you and giving you new things to think about, because I think a lot of, if we go back to that, you know, typical, what are the stakeholders, all the stakeholders involved in a customer arc, if we realize that some of them come in and out, if some of them are there throughout, but their mindset changes based on where they are, whether it's mm. a purchase or post-purchase, if I can be the one that continue to inform you on how to do your job better and improve your organization, the likelihood of you continuing to buy from me goes up exponentially right. even if I am the highest cost vendor. And I have one deals hands down where I've been told you're two to three times higher than competition. Sure. You took the time to help us frame our needs and then showed us how those needs are causing problems and how we can solve for that. Mm. And so I, I challenge marketers and salespeople to say, you ought to be able to talk about your customer's world and what you can offer or, or what your industry is doing without ever mentioning your product, service, or company name. And that's a tough thing for a lot of organizations and a lot of sales reps and marketing people to be able to do. It kind of flips the script a little bit. It reminds me of things like the challenger sale or just yeah. t- telling people, you know, too many people that do these discoveries, hey, let's go find out your problems. And, and sometimes you already know what their problems are. Hey, we've heard this and this and this. Is, is that you know, something that you've been dealing with? Yeah, it is. Okay, tell us more. You know, tell us more about this. Mm-hmm. It, that balance of not always – because I've, I've bumped into some people that by the time we chat with them, they, they have like discovery fatigue. Yeah. They told everyone their problems, but those people weren't actually you – know, to what you described earlier where you're listening and you're framing and you're helping them. They were just listening. They were like, hey, tell us your problems. And great. By our by our tool, you know, like there's no there's no thinking in between hearing the problems and then telling them what the solutions are. Well, and I think, and I would even back it up further. And I'm yeah. kind of stealing this from Jim Keenan, but Jim talks about identifying the need. So getting back to your sports in- injury, the problem was your knee. Yeah, the need was to strengthen your muscles. Yeah. And so you know, I all the time get calls of hey, we need to do some customer, we don't have insight into our customers. So that's, that's a big problem because we can't do this and this. Well, the need is, what they're really saying is, I need to get to know my customers better. The yes. problem is because I don't know my customers, I don't know what content to write, I don't know yes. what programs to launch, I can't define a strategy, so on and so forth. So if I was only gonna solve for the problem, I put together a content architecture. Their need is to get closer to their buyers and their customers. Yes. Now, what do people present with? They present with symptoms, right? Yeah. The smart, smart ones will maybe have that another layer down below. Like they were saying, we need to know your buyers better. But oftentimes they'll come at you and say, well, I don't know what I should write. Or, or even worse, we write all the time and no one, no one reads it. Right. Yeah. You the truth falls in the forest and no one's around. Does anybody yeah. hear it? Yeah. Absolutely. Because, I call it because marketing. We're doing it because that's what our role calls for. 
because marketing, you know, uh, I bumped into that, uh, a couple of years ago, um, upstate New York, uh, large client, big piggy banks had, we're talking about an idea of nurturing and sending out good content and content that answers questions or speaks to them. And they brought out their braggadocious, um, content piece and they said they had paid a an attorney in new york city like new york city uh, <laughs> apparently was a thousand dollars an hour and like wow. full stop in the wrong job that sounds great <laughs> yeah right uh, <laughs> they paid him a thousand dollars an hour to write this white paper and the thing was no kidding like 27 pages long so i'm like what is this guy's word per minute like the, yeah. I can't imagine the zeros on the contract to write this thing. So I was like, that sounds great. What questions did this, or like, what questions did this answer for your buyer? Or what was, what was the thing? And all the heads started like slowly going down because they realized they just created it to create it. Yep. You know, and to your earlier thing, um, what they wanted to say, not necessarily what their buyer needed to hear. Exactly. Ugh. Exactly. So it's, it's foundational and, you know, it's, I, I think part of it is it's hard, again, going back to the myth smashing, it's hard yes. to do. It's hard to do because we have to, we have to constantly to keep pace and uh, we have to constantly really make sure that as our buyers or our markets change, we keep pace with that and continue to update those. How do you do uh, that? I mean, cha- I hate change. Change in my pocket, change in the market. Well, I mean, I mean, change most... You've, you've probably seen this with your organization. Most of what we do with our clients is change management. So yeah. putting Tell in- Tell me about that. Well, I, I think it's, uh, you're right. I mean, as human beings, we despise change. Um, we may, I heard a client the other day say, we, we do really well to talk about it. It's mm. the applying the change that we really struggle. Talking so cheap. When we think about taking a step back, and so let's take your client of that content factory idea. Yeah, to crank out content, and um, a lot of organizations are doing that, or that because marketing. When you say, "Wait a minute, stop," let's gain insight into your buyer. Let's yep. understand their buying process. Marketing is having to build some muscle memory from muscles they've never used before. Right. And then when you say to sales, we need you to shift your paradigm from pound product down the throat to continue to diagnose and what I call informational selling where I'm going to continue to collect information from you. And then in exchange for that, I'm going to give you information on how you should think about it, solving your need or addressing your need. Oh, and by the way, I've got this product and service that when you give me the permission, I'll finally show it to you on how, and that's kind of the close, the icing on the cake that now this is how I can do this for you. But Jill Rowley talks about being that information concierge. And I think it's such a great term where I'm going to help you qualify and quantify your problem. That is a change, fundamental change from where the way most marketing departments run and most salespeople run. Add on top of that for marketing now, CEOs are looking at us to be growth engines for organizations. We're having to engage further or, or more across the, the uh, journey than ever before. We're being asked to drive customer experience in many respects. And sales is having to adapt to a very informed, tuned in, always on buyer. I remember back in the day when I first started selling, I was the gatekeeper to information. If the buyer wanted information, they had to come to me. Yeah. Now, I need this. 
That's yeah, it. Just a phone, man. I out about you, your company. I can go to Twitter and LinkedIn. Say, has anybody worked with Vision CX? What was that like? I, I don't need a salesperson. Yeah. So that salesperson actually needs to be, you know, that Sherpa that kind of guides, directs, yeah. helps. And then once we have the ability to do that, and I think that's why you see so many studies that talk about salespeople missing quota. I know about your product already. As a matter of fact, I, and I'm sure you see this, I get a lot when I first get a call from an unknown, never before engaged with prospect. I get, hey, we're looking at you, this one, and this one. They've already made their shortlist. Yeah. That's a change for salespeople. Right. Right? We want to go, well, product demo this, short <laughs> RFP. Yeah. It's, it's just not that way. So that's what I mean in change management. We're fundamentally having to learn how to work productively again. Interesting. Change management. You know, the fact that they jump right from, it's not even a discovery. And they've probably seen the demo video if you have one. Mm -hmm. The question then, you know, tell me the difference between you and you. Yeah. Right. Hey, nice to meet you. Hey, tell me the difference between you and your biggest competitor. What, what, is, the, what is the skinny? And, and no sales BS. Like, what is the actual difference between you and you? Uh, oh, and you know what's funny with me? Sometimes I'll be at a convention and I'll say, like, I'll meet some vendor. And finally, when their idea clicks, like, I understand what they're selling or what this thing does. Yeah. Like, How much? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, wait, is that a qualified question? Does that mean you're like at the end of the process? No, I'm just, I'm not even going to go through the process until I, I fit how much you fit into Well, well, we talk about that after a couple calls and okay, well, I appreciate it. I'll catch you later. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's just such a, a flip. I'm, you know, I'm shopping. I'm, I'm curious if this yeah. thing's close to my, you know, my threshold. Hey, I could, and can I test it? Can I do a little test here? Tip, you know, put my toe in the water and just try it out for three months and see if it's a fit or not. You know, how much is that going to cost? It's going to cost you thousand dollars. Cool. Let's try it. Why not? Right. It's going to cost you a hundred grand this year or minimum purchase price is 25 K. Okay. Maybe later. I'm not really, I mean, I, that's going to be a longer process, you know, more decisions to make. Sure. It's, just, it's so interesting how that, how that is. And, and just the experience of my, you know, as you, to your points, so you think about how you like to buy, you know, and, and, and we should be, better at selling how we want to buy, you know? Well, and I think what you, do, you know, what you experience is if you say, well, how much? And it's, well, we can have, you know, we need to get so-and-so on the phone. We can talk, yeah. What you're, what you're telling that vendor is, no, I'm, I'm driving the process. Yeah. And so right. I, I cringe when I hear organizations say, well, we have a very defined sales process. I would love if B2B buyers had a very defined buying process but I have yet to hear a B2B buyer say I'm in the sales accepted lead stage of my buying process. Yeah. And true. so it would be awesome if it was as linear as serious decisions has told us it is. It's not. Now <laughs> shots fired. Well, I'm not not necessarily. I I'm a believer in that we <laughs> manage that for an internal perspective. But there is a real danger to an organization that equates the waterfall to their buying process. And what, what you just talked about, when you go to a vendor at a show and ask how much, they should just be saying, okay, I've got my measurement, and that's where I think the waterfall is really good for. I know how to measure the uh, effectiveness of my programs from a conversion level. Right. What Casey is now telling me is, I, I'm like 
potentially want to buy today. And what that rep is doing when he's saying or she's saying, well, we got to have a call or we need to do this, is saying, I don't, I don't give a shit about your buying process. <laughs> I really don't care. I've got my sales process. Yeah. And guess what? The buyer says, okay, fine, I'm out. We don't care about sales process. If I walk onto a car lot and I know what car I want to buy, don't sit there and try to sell me. As a matter of fact, I had that experience. I sent an Did email you? to four dealers. I knew exactly the automobile I was going to buy. And I cool. said, this model, this color, these features. And then at the bottom, I said, and if you email me back trying to upsell me additional features, I will delete your email and you're out. And I told him, here are the four dealerships. I'm wow. you're out. Two of them emailed back and said, well, have you thought about adding this and this? And no. Like, delete. <laughs> and, and so again, they're, they're trained. Yeah. I'll do this. We do the same thing to our B2B sales reps. And so it's a fundamental change to clue in to say, here are the buying signals. Feel free to ask questions. Yeah. So if you came to me and said, well, how much is it going to be? I would say, hey, you know, here's a range. I'd really like to better understand your needs. So instead of just throwing out a flat fee, but here's a range that is typical for what you're looking for. But we could probably customize a little bit better unless you just want the standard vanilla out of the box proof of concept. Right. Now I've addressed your issue, your need. And by just by me saying we could do a little bit if we got on the phone for half an hour and understood, or let's step to the side and unpack that. Now I can customize something to you. I'm still showing that I'm going to give you what you want, but there's two options for you. The state, this out of the box vanilla or a little bit more customized proof of concept. Which do you want? Right. It's back in your court because the buyer determines what they want. And we're not going to disrupt our buyers anymore. There's this right. idea of disruptive selling or disruptive marketing. Do you mm. like being disrupted? I don't. Hell no. Yeah, nobody does. But we think we can do it to our buyers. Right. It's so weird. It's like we forget that H in the B to H. We forget that human side. Then, you know, yeah. we, we can, we can treat marketing. We can go that too far because we're not talking to the person necessarily and forget it's just a number on, to your point, a waterfall. A number on a spreadsheet. It's actually a person. And that's where your yeah. unsubscribes come from too, is when you forget you're sending junk, <laughs> they have a way of voting with their finger, you know, and just sending right. that thing out there. Yeah. Um, we're reporting it to LinkedIn when we get the social uh, cell. All the time, man. Yes. I, you know, like, ah, oh, you're going to rant. You're just going to take me on a tangent. Um, <laughs> I, I get these, these messages and sometimes it's from a CEO and I wrote back, like, did you outsource your social? Did you outsource your LinkedIn? Is there somebody else doing this for you? Because this is really bad. I had two recently, the top, like the worst possible, you know, he said this, Hey, I thought you might be curious. And then his response said, well, I, you know, I really wanted to send out custom messages to everyone. And like, there's nothing custom about that message you sent me. This is the worst thing ever. And it's like, it's like almost like a Facebook message, you know, where I've learned just don't get involved in the argument. Right. LinkedIn. I haven't taught myself. I'm like, ah, oh, I kind of want to just call this guy and be like, this is the worst ever. But you know, I don't know. My favorite was a former colleague, uh, still a colleague, but a uh, former teammate over at Annuitas. His name is Jason. Mm. And he got an email from somebody on LinkedIn promoting their personalization software. And the <laughs> message started with, hey, Bill. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, really? How good is your personalization? So, yeah, we have to be careful. And uh, 
in what we do and how we do it. And, you know, I think it's, uh, there's a difference between social selling and social stalking for sure. Social blasting, you know, it's yeah. the same old blasting. Uh, you met, you mentioned one thing earlier about, we were talking about the, you know, the buyer driving the process. It's so, it's so cool, by the way, for me to just say something, not even knowing what I'm talking about. And then you were able to like dissect it and say, what, what, what you're describing here is you, you're controlling the process. And I thought mm-hmm. you're so right. And sales is often trained to not let that happen. Don't let your buyer control your sales process. You hear that a lot. And to this whole point we've just been talking about, that's not necessarily a good thing because that, I don't even know what product that was that, didn't right. play ball with me on the pricing. It, you got to simplify. You got to be able to say, well, you know, it's a uh, hundred bucks a user or, or, you know, that's the vanilla to your point. And then there's other, other thing. There's more. We can talk about it. And like, okay, cool. I got a good sense for it, but it's all about controlling it. And it's almost like sales needs to be able to plan or marketing to plan for the craziness. That is maybe there's like certain touch points instead of baseball being like first base, second base, third, it's like right. first, third, home second i win you know it's like there it's have you ever seen that graphic where it shows like what we think or what serious decisions thinks is the buying process it's a straight line with miles oh, squiggly yeah. yeah it's a squiggly oh. line thing it's like classic it but, is. but then people go like that's cool it's true we all laugh at it but then how do you really plan for that but it just i wonder if there's these like milestones you just got to be able to understand you know so if somebody does ask for a price at the very first you know meeting you know, well, you know, how do you do that? There's, there's a couple of things. I think part of what, and, and so I'm, I'm now going to flip and, and perhaps uh, defend the, the sales rep at the trade show, because as I've told clients before is we want to qualify, but we also want to disqualify. Yeah. Uh, if my ideal client is a, uh, it has revenue of north of half a billion yeah. has an employee count of over 750, uh, 750 employees and is US-based. US Let's yes. just say that's the very high, high-level account totally. criteria. Do I really want to talk to somebody who has 25 million, you know, uh, uh, 75 employees and is in Europe? Right. I don't, no offense no. to that person, but I don't no. want to talk to you. Yeah, I don't want to waste be. my sales rep's time. Yeah. So there's some of that going on. In terms sure. of that buyer, and I, I've actually used that graphic. Yeah. Uh, I put it side by side with the funnel, and then I put it next to what the real buying journey looks like. You have to take that and you have to multiply that by as many stakeholders as you, as you have in your buying. Oh, uh, yeah. Right? So how do you then chart? And I do know groups that say, no, we can, we can do that. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry, you can't. <laughs> so whoever's right, whoever's wrong. What I believe is we should at least look at the buying milestones. Mm, yeah. Starting with the trigger event or what Google calls that zero moment of truth. And yep. Lowe's is doing, Lowe's depart, uh, hardware store is doing a great ad campaign now, right? That moment when you realize whether it's your, your refrigerator isn't big enough, your carpet needs replacing, that's that zero moment of truth. So something happens in an organization, and it may be a slow burn, where somebody somewhere says, we need to do something. So now they're pushed into the buying process. So then from the moment of trigger, what happens Mm. at each and every stage? Do they start, and that's one of the things when I do interviews for our client customers, is I'm saying, so what did you do next? And yeah. so they're like, well, we went out to Google and we started to 
gather information, then we talk to our peers, and then we went to industry sources. So we're mapping, you know, trigger event, uh, collection of information, or and then and then they said, well, then they then we had to define our internal requirements, and so this is what we used. So we're then mapping that milestone, the actions that happen at each of that milestone, and then what groups were involved or what roles were involved at each of those milestones. And what's really interesting, when you do it that way, you start to look and say, wow, so the CFO was involved at the beginning, <laughs> but then when we started to see that the customers collected information, defined requirements, the CFO was gone. Right. It's not the director of finance. So that changes the game for sales. Who's always going, no, I got to get to the C-level. Yeah. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because the real influencer could be at the director level. Right. And if you win their heart, then you're going to win the deal. So it really is a great way to define that. But I believe if you try to map, if you say you have five different buyers that represent five different roles in the organization, all with their singular view and their own bias, good luck trying to map every individual motion that those people take and then trying to write content for that. You would need an army just of data scientists to do that. Yeah. Um, your content library will be ridiculously large. Ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, you know, AI, big data. It'll be fine. Just buy this tool. Oh, there we go. <laughs> you need to play, apply AI and machine learning. I do believe in it, but... Yeah, it's I'm a big believer and I believe you can just get the same result if you do the buying milestones and mm -hmm. really address that and understand that. And I can assure you it's not MQL, SAL, SQL. What do you like to use? Interest, consideration, evaluation, decision. It's not four steps. I wish it was. If it was, our jobs would be so much easier. Do you do you even sign labels? Because I know you've said like the waterfall makes it helpful to track and measure. I do on the back end, sure. Yeah, we have yeah. qualification model that we follow internally. The buyer never sees that. Right. And I don't have a standard model that I say this is the buying process. I've had I've worked with some clients where we define the milestones and there's mm -hmm. four steps. I've worked with some where we have 12 steps. It mm -hmm. all depends on what we hear from their customers when we say so with them, what did you do next? Who is involved? What steps were taken? So does it shift from being like a journey or a trail to being more like a choose your own adventure, but make sure you've hit all the dots or hear the dots on your way to eventually like, how, how do you graphically mentally set that up? Yeah, that's a great question. A so, so once you define that, then you can start to build your content architecture. And I think right. that's another, some of the mistakes that companies have made, especially with automation when they build score models and they say, oh, well, every white paper gets 30 points. Mm. Well, I, quite frankly, I don't care if you take a white paper. What I want to know is where in the journey did you take that? So when you build a content architecture that's aligned to your customer's buying pattern or customer journey, you may say this, this white paper is going to be placed further down in a late stage nurture which yeah. aligns to, let's just say, vendor identification stage of my, of my customer's buying journey. So that when they come in and select that piece of content, perhaps on their first visit, I now can then decipher about where they are in their buying process. For sure. And so right. I'm assigning the score based on the action taken mm. as it relates to the journey versus saying every ebook gets 20 points. 
That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. it's it, it's too it, uh, not granular. The opposite. It's too high level to then say thirty points. But to your point, yeah. that white paper might be um, if it's late stage content. It's all about things that are happen typically right before a purchase. Then if that happens right away. Then maybe they're toward the end of the whole thing. Maybe right. And I need to adapt to that. And if yeah. I'm finding that higher score value, and and they meet the the demographic and the firmographic piece. Well, then they may get, they may necessitate a sales follow-up after their first visit. I'm not saying that will happen all the time. That's probably more the exception than the rule, but it's something we would need to consider. So you're not throwing out the fact that there there is a path. They are walking some kind of path, but they're hitting milestones maybe in different orders, or is it still there's a particular order they're going to hit those things in typically? Every customer is going to do what they do. Yeah. Um, What I want to know is- If they take this action, this that we can then read the signs and read the tea leaves and see yeah. where in this stage of that process. If they take this action and engage with this content first, we probably know with fair amount of certainty that they're in the early stage. Got so it. what I'm doing is I'm creating this content model that on the back end is all strung together, but I'm giving it all to the buyer and the customer upfront. So they can pick and choose however right. they want versus this, I'm going to nurture by sending you an email every two weeks. Mm. So you're very limited on the content that you can engage with because now I'm dictating that. And even if you respond, I have this arbitrary inane touch policy that we've developed. This is I can only email you every two weeks. How's that for a conversation? Yeah. Right. So, so how do you flip that on a set? How do you, what do you, how do you blow that up? No more nurturing? No, I think you, I I don't think, I don't don't believe that drip is true nurture. I think nurture is based predicated on buyer behavior. Interesting. So if, if you and I are talking, you know, think about if, let's just say if you and I were emailing back and forth and we're having this great dialogue and we're prepping for the show and you send me an email and then I send you back a question and I don't hear from you for two weeks. I'm thinking, Casey, are you there? Are we still <laughs> doing this? And that's what we do to our buyers because we get a drip. So yeah. for me, if you come to my site and start to engage, and uh, hopefully we have a content hub or something uh, dynamic, and so they're binging on my content, and then I send that email that says, hey, thanks for accessing. Here's that piece. So we know you've binged on it, but we're also going to fulfill it. Um, if you cut, if you click on that and then come back to my resource center the next day and consume more content and request more information, am I supposed to just let that lie fallow for two weeks? Right. It's a really bad experience. So all of my nurture should be predicated on your behavior as the customer and mm. what you're requesting of me. So if you're asking for more 24 hours later, I'm going to send you more 24 hours later because that's what you want. Right. It's not what I want. It's what you want. So, and at the same time, if you drop out, then yeah, I may put you into a drip track that says every two weeks, I'm going to send you a newsletter just to keep my name in front of you. Right. It's almost like the idea of the top of mind versus actually nurturing someone in, a, in the sales process is right. it's and different, it's, but we're just creating, sometimes people just create one and then we're just, we're nurturing you every two months or even I've seen month, you know, month to month. Yeah. And and that might be great if they've already made the decision, you want to stay top of mind, or they've said, call me back in six months. That might be a nice way to just stay top of mind. But to your point, if they're binging here, binging there, uh, you're not having a conversation. 
Right. And that's, I believe that's what really good B2B customer and buyer marketing does. It, in, it invokes a conversation. Mm. I do believe there's a, there's a place for story, especially in brand content. Yeah. But I think when it comes to, are they buying? Are they already customers? Are they looking to get more out of my product or service? Are they looking to buy more? I want to strike up a dialogue and I have to do that through multiple channels. Interesting. You know, I was at a drift conference right before Dreamforce and um, they were talking about how, you know, nurture, even email is often about having a conversation later. It's like all about the talking later and emailing later, you know, fill out this form. We'll, we'll, we'll follow up later, you know, maybe the now, Hey, I'm into your point. People binge, man, Netflix, maybe Mm -hmm. really good content. If you didn't write boring stuff, you're right. binging now when they have the time and maybe they'll check back later with a little reminder, but it's not, it's not this sort of on off Boolean type research over several weeks. Exactly. Yeah. When I'm, when I'm wanting to buy something, when I'm, I mean, I'm on it and, and I want, yeah. I want a fast response. I want to be, I would much rather chat with somebody online than pick yeah. up the phone and, and have True. to, to go through this and, so I think, you know, it's, it's up to us to be as, as marketers and vendors to be as responsive as possible. And if email is the best you can do right now, then make sure that you're triggering it based on the buyer behavior, not on some cadence that somebody drew up because you think it's what's best. Right, right. The, it's almost like the cadence of least resistance. Oh, if you email them once a month, you know, they might not get too mad about it. Yeah, but they might not do anything else about it either. They might... Yeah. You might right. have already done all their binging on some other software and bought that thing by the time they get your next email. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it's, again, this is why it's not easy. Not easy. <laughs> so, you know, do you have any, do you have any tips on the change management side? Any, any sort of strategies you've seen work? You're here now and you need to get here. You know, maybe it's the CSI we created or any of the things you learned today. Yeah, and this part of what I wrote about it in driving demand is you have to understand just just like your buyers, you're working with people internally. Yeah. So uh, I'm a big believer in uh, what Chip and Dan Heath talk about is look for the bright spots. So the fastest way to change is to capitalize on what's been working. Um, Brent Adamson from CEB talks about also recognizing that everybody's always had the best of intention. So when you right. go in and you start to change things to say, well, this isn't working anymore or who did this, you know, you should say to your people, look, we, we've done a great job. Uh, everybody's done the best they can do, but we need to change things and here's why. So I think first and foremost, understanding why the change. Right. Our buyers have changed. Our industry has changed. We have to change as a vendor. Right. Uh, making sure that everybody feels bought in and has ownership of that process um, and then also from an executive perspective, realize and expect failure it, along the way, learn from that failure and also realize that oftentimes you're going to have people that no matter how, how good the change sounds at the end are going to resist. Right. It's fundamentally. And at the end of the day, what I have found is fundamentally it's fear of mm. we make these changes. What happens to me? Or a, just a fundamental lack of understanding. And so if I have that fear, and that's disguised different ways, you have people who will just, you know, very, very clearly opt out and say, I can't do this. I'm gone. 
Uh, you'll sometimes you'll identify those people, and one of the clever ways is they make statements instead of ask questions, mm. um, or they're doing the behind the scenes kind of just sowing a little bit of discord and doubt among the team uh, to to slow it down. Um, so, but at the end of the day, it's just about people. And we've got to understand the human element and we've got to have empathy with our people internally. And then lastly, this thing takes time to change the culture of an organization takes two to three years, two to three years. You know, it's a, it's a great reminder that it's a people in the end. It's a people thing. Yeah. I I said earlier, I hate change. Yep. So somehow we're expecting other people to change and not hate it (laughs) or not, or not find some just, you know, um, and, and, you know, knowing the why for it helps ownership, but yeah, I love that. Expect failure. It's, it's more of a slow, consistent, steady change needs to happen. So it's not just right. the change of the month, you know? And as we were talking about at the earlier, you know, talking about hiking, uh, one of the things I love to do when I hike, especially on a long hike is every once in a while, just stop and look back and mm-hmm. be like, okay. You know, we're higher here in Colorado. You know, my wife and I were hiking on Saturday. We went on a six mile hike. And at one point we stopped and I'm like, look at how much elevation we've already gained. Yeah. So you're looking out and you're seeing these views. And I think sometimes we have to do that in our organizations when we're driving change is where we have to stop and say, wow, look at all that we've done already. One right. of the things that I always look at is have the have the people we are working with, have they started to change their vocabulary around what we're doing? Have they adopted new words to describe? Is there a common? Those are milestone change milestones that we should Mm. celebrate because if we say, well, we can't do anything, you know, it's, it's going to be take two to three years. That's a long, hard slog. Right. Versus, Hey, we won this battle. We've accomplished this. We're already seeing an uptick in whatever key metric we're measuring. That's cause to celebrate, and it motivates people to go for that next mile and that next stretch of change. Right. Stop again. So you should have many kind of mini celebrations along the way when major things are accomplished. That makes so much sense. Little water break. Turn around and look at where you come from. And you know, sometimes if you're below the you know, in that tree line, in that tree cover, you have no idea how far you've come unless it's like a nice straight path. You can see through the trees maybe, but you know, you come out to any of those little breaks where there's some rock and, and you're like, Whoa, to your point, yeah. you know, just to even remind yourself and everyone else how far you've come. That makes so much sense. And I think sometimes we're so determined to get to the top, not, not take a break all the time or we do our water break, but it's only just to refuel and not even reflect we just mm-hmm. keep on going, but you miss that part that you've actually. Exactly. That's cool. Yeah. It's a lot of fun when it works. Yeah. I'll say. No, this whole conversation is a lot of fun. You know, my question is you're like, who are you? Right. How, how huh. did you get to the mountains of Colorado? This wise sage of B2B marketing and change and, and, you know, well, data and all the things that you're doing these days. Uh, you know, the B2B thing happened quite by accident. I had, uh, I had sworn as a college student, I would not follow in my father's footsteps and be a marketer. <laughs> we see how that ended out. Yeah, uh, it ended up really well, man. <laughs> I, looked at, I looked at several other careers, but pretty much out of college, uh, was in a 
started with a nonprofit in their marketing group. So um, obviously 25 years later, it works for me. Uh, In terms of Colorado, we moved here about eight years ago. It was a lifestyle move. We had spent some time in Dallas prior to that. Um, I've never, never really lost my Northeast Adirondack roots. So I love mountains. We love the outdoors. Plus we have family here in Colorado. Nice. So uh, at that point, my oldest was uh, going into his freshman year of high school. He's now graduated and has his own first real job. Wow. Uh, so we've been here for a while, uh, but it, it, was a, it was a great move. And as for me, I uh, married to an amazing woman. Uh, we've, I think we just celebrated 24 or 23 years. Jeez, uh, congrats. So every year she renews her subscription. I feel very grateful <laughs> And, yeah, keep that turned to zero, man. Uh, that's right. I have four amazing kids. Uh, the The youngest is the only one left at home. Uh, I love the outdoors. I, uh, you know, and at the end of the day, I love. I'm fortunate enough to love what I do. I, yeah. I love to help companies and help people transform what they're doing and drive effectual change. And that's our value. And we do that with our clients. We do that with our partners. And then what really drives us, what, what gets us working at, what gets us getting up every morning and working is we're uh, very involved with a nonprofit that uh, works with single moms and widows in the Atesa region of Uganda. Interesting. So beauty for Ashes, Uganda. And it, it just goes along with our value of transformation. It's a beauty so, for Ashes? Beauty for Ashes, Uganda. And uh, it's all about long-term sustainability and empowerment through education. How, how did you guys get it, you know, looped into that? Or my wife, out? my wife met the founder in a yoga class. No kidding. Saw the Africa tattoo and said, so what's that about? That was about four years ago. And so I go over once a year uh, to see what's happening on the ground there. And my wife goes over three times a year. Wow. Um, but you know, there's something really moving when you see a 50 year old woman who was told that eight years old, you're not worth educating anymore. Mm. Uh, when you see her write her name for the first time. Yeah. It's just so moving and powerful. And they now say, I feel worthy. Mm. And so it gets into our whole, the whole reason Vism is, exists. If, one, if somebody said to me, what's your value in one word? I would say transformation. And so we're able to do that through through that. And we give a, portion of all of our profits to that organization. So all of our clients and partners we work with are also part of that ecosystem. Huh. Now I want to talk about vision, but tell me, so, so you gone to shoot, I mean, what was it like the first time you went over there? I mean, I, I've huh. never been to even Africa. I mean, I've been to some places, yeah. but. Mind blowing. Um, it was, uh, it was moving. It was emotional. Uh, it was, I did my best to try to, uh, map my time on Twitter, but <clears throat> even as good as oh, T-Mobile, okay. even as good as T-Mobile is over there, sometimes it took like 30 minutes for a picture to load. Wow. Again, when you're, when you're working alongside and, and seeing these women who many of them don't have husbands anymore, they've kind of been, uh, you know, just discarded as yeah. part of their culture. But when you see them start to believe in themselves and realize that they're worthy of love because they're, they have a spark of the divine in them. And because they're, they're upright and taking oxygen, they're worthy. And yeah. then you see them start to uh, learn math 
and how to write and you hear them say, I can now go to the market and not get cheated for the first time. Yes. They're making a life for themselves. And these women, you want to talk about entrepreneurs. These women are amazing. There was one village we were at where they, they're in a co-op, 60 women, and they started a goat farm. Okay. And so they had a few goats. They bred the goats. The goats obviously are populating. So they're taking some of the babies, selling the babies at market after they've weaned them. They've then built a goat house, which has space. So they're taking the goat droppings, and then they take the droppings to the market to sell for fertilizer. Fertilizer, yeah. And they're building these businesses, and now they're taking their some of these women because of the money they've made are able to move out of mud huts and yeah. homes with steel or tin roofs. And you're sitting there, and they're walking through their business plan with you, and you're like, I can learn a lot from you. So it, it was just, it was awesome. It was wow. awesome. Just some of the happiest, most joyful people I've ever experienced. And so you learn a lot uh, and you come away with like, wow, I, I, the idea of like, I came to help and you all helped me so much more. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. Like we, we have one idea in our head and then it makes such a difference. You know, one of the things I found, I mean, I've been to like Iraq and some other places was mm-hmm. that really like the treatment of women is almost like the glue for society. If you have that, it can be so much stronger. If you don't, things are, it's almost like, you know, me building a house with bricks with no mortar, right? It's just right. a shamble. Yeah. Um, and so it makes total sense. I mean, these women have been cast aside, but you know, most of the team at Cheshire and, and other places, like that's, that's such a, a great um, group of people. And you, and I, I, I'm with you on being surprised, but like, wow, the, the work ethic that can come out of folks that you would have no idea. And just, just a reminder not to judge people by cover, by right. anything, you know? Yeah. yeah. No, it, it's moving. You should come with us next time. All right. When are you going next? January, end of January. I got. I'll talk to the misses. We'll see what's up. But the only the only downside is I'm flying home Super Bowl Sunday, and I told the director, "It's like, are you insane? What are you doing?" But uh, small price to pay, and I don't think the Broncos are going to make it, so we'll be all right. Well, I went to last year's Super Bowl, so oh yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not not a good one for you guys. No, but you know what? You think it's like a once in a lifetime opportunity, and then the moment they lost, and the green ticker tape tape came down instead of red and blue, I was like, I got to do this again. <laughs> the highs were higher, the lows were lower, but it was like, I need to experience this when it's the red tape, you know, when it's That's the right. blue. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how they're, how they're going to, but that's a good point. You know, do they get in the Super Bowl and can you, can you watch that from there? But yeah, well, I'll be watching it in the air on the way home. Yeah. I think, I mean, that was a cool experience, but this sounds even that next level deeper of just that feeling. And, and I wonder, you know, you f- did, now, did you found Annuitus or were you part of the initial crew? Or I was a co-founder. Okay. Um, it was just two of us. We co-founded it. We grew it. Um, you grew an empire, you know, B2B but, marketing empire. Oh, well, wow. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, you know, led it to three Inc. 5000s, had a good run. And then just at the end of 2016, it was killing me. It was killing my family. Sure. I had to realign my priorities and get back to, you know, Brene Brown talks about cultivating what's important. And I had Mm. far too much cultivating my business and not cultivating my relationships. So I changed course. Um, 
turned over the reins to uh, their current CEO. Smart. That I'm out and uh, had some time to reflect, had some time to figure out what I was going to do next. And here I am at Vism CX, and it's a whole different model, a whole different approach, same, same quality of work. Um, and we're doing a lot of fun stuff, but what is it? What, what, just tell me about Vism then. I mean, what do you guys do there? What do you, yeah, we work with, we work with all kinds of clients. I mean, literally from fortune 100 to startups, uh, part of what I, I work best when I don't have a same cut every day. Agree. Um, it helps my ADD a little bit. Totally. But uh, we really want to help customers uh, enable, equip, and empower the customer experience. And we believe that starts internally with your employees. It's real understanding what is our brand value, what is our brand promise, and then how are we enabled and empowered to bring that to our customers in whatever role we're in. So if it's sales, if it's marketing, professional services, customer support, And so there's a whole list of things. I still, because of my background, I still have a lot of companies who want to start at that demand gen piece and getting customer insights. So we do a lot of that work. Um, And then I've got a couple of other side things I'm doing. I serve on the board of a startup. I'm working on another startup with another couple of guys uh, writing my second book. Um, So in all my spare time. Yeah, second book. But yeah, it is. It's going to be a fun one. So I'm, well, it is a fun one. I'm really enjoying this one. Is it a secret topic? It's not. It's basically kind of, there's a, it's my belief kind of on my way out of annuitous and into Vism is we have fallen prey to this idea that there is, uh, you know, the American dream to achieve that. Uh, first of all, we define that by the number of zeros on our paycheck, bank account, our titles. Totally. Big house, white picket fence and 2.5 kids and two automobiles. Yeah. Uh, which is a total perversion of what it was meant to be. Um, And then to achieve that as Americans, we believe that we have to be that scarce resource and burn the candle at both ends to the point we almost wear it as like an identification. Yeah, like a badge. And um, so many of us, yours truly included, did that. And then at the end, we turn around and we realize that the people we supposedly were doing this for had told ourselves we were doing this for. Mm-hmm. The people that we asked to sacrifice so we could go pursue our professional dreams are so distant mm. because we've put so much time and effort. And so it's really a book about how do we do that differently? So <clears throat> the, the goal is to have it out uh, in spring of 2019. Um, and so it'll be available on Amazon and the title is going to be the un-American dream. Interesting. Oh. Now, a question on that. Um, is that one of those things that we say when we get successful and that you needed to burn the candle both ends to get there, but then you like getting successful is full of regret anyways, do you think? Or <laughs> it, can you truly do it the other way and get there? You know, I, I think you can do it the other way and get there because I did it. Okay. Um, yes, I had a lot of success at Annuitus. Right. Um, and I, I will forever be thankful for that. 
but I hit the reset button. With Vism CX, we hit the reset button. I didn't have, you know, everybody thinks of this idea, oh, you own your own business, you must be so loaded. I actually <laughs> totally. I, I put a post about that on LinkedIn. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I put a post about that on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago where I was talking to a guy and his response to me was, well, easy for you to say, you must be rich. Mm. And I burst out laughing. I said, man, I'm, I'm many things, but rich is not one of them. Right. Um, but I'm doing it now. And so, yes, I achieved success, but I literally had to hit that reset button and started from scratch. I didn't bring any clients with me. Got I didn't it. bring, you know, uh, so, so when I left, I left. Right. And I was gone and it was, it was all good and I needed to do it. But right. I remember sitting, not here in the office one morning, actually write about it in the book at my kitchen table, kind of saying, all right, so what's what do I do? What's next? And at the same time, right. I felt really serene in that I had made the right choice. And so I think it's a lot about setting uh, expectations with mm -hmm. both our partners, clients, and even our, our bosses and our executives. I think we have to set work-life boundaries, and I'm talking about that at a TEDx in uh, in November in Atlanta. Nice. Okay, great. And um, so, yeah, it's it's the book on we can do this differently, and in, especially when you have an experience going to another country uh, yeah. like Uganda, and you see people who materially do not have what we have in America, right? Uh, even something like a water bottle like this, they don't have. Totally. And you see the joy and the happiness. And then you compare that to where we are in our country. With so much we, more. We yeah. are the most prosperous material country in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And the, the amount of angst, the amount of aggravation and frustration and anger, yeah. everything is just staggering. And I think that's what Mother Teresa referred to when she talked about the poverty of the West. And so I just think there's a better way. I think we can be happy. I think we can achieve and obtain happiness. And it doesn't have to be because of how much we make or what title we have or what businesses we start. Mm -hmm. If we want to do that, that's great. But there's a better way to do that and preserve the relationships that we hold so dear. That's awesome. How long have you been doing Vism? Uh, let's see, February of 2017. So what is that? 16 months, 18 months, something like Coming that. Coming up on your anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and we're doing really well. We're having a great time doing it. I love it. That's cool. So, so you actually, then you have done it with Vism then to be able to say, let me do this thing differently. And it hasn't, you know, floundered out. It's actually gone great doing it in the new way. It, it's kind of insane. Um, really? Yeah, the the clients we've been able to work with and the business we're getting and uh, and at the same time I'm really I, I tell every prospect here's how we work this is what who we want to work with and this is why we should work together if that doesn't fit your model you're not going to offend me but we're not the vendor for you what's your model and, uh, my model is I want to work with people that I like true I, I want to work with people that have a shared valued system okay people who truly want to drive effectual change in their organization. It's awesome. So if that's a fortune 50, great. If that's a startup, that's great, but I am not. And I have boundaries. I'm mm. not going to be the always on call resource that you can call day or night over the weekend when I'm out with my family. Right. Um, but when I'm working, the same goes for my family. 
is that's my boundary. Like I am working, I am here, I'm dedicated, I'm all in. Yeah. And obviously sometimes you have to man- maneuver that around. It's, it's, but that takes a lot of forethought and planning to say, yes, this, this time I can make that exception um, and, and make sure. But I was with a client this week and she said to me, because uh, we were on a late call, it was an exception. We had to do a call to quarter to eight. Sure. But I so respected the fact that you kept saying, okay, we have 10 minutes left. I have a hard stop at 745. So I asked her, I said, did you know what that hard stop was? She said, I have no idea. I said, I told my wife and son we were going to go out for ice cream. Mm. I was done the call. I said, and I wasn't going to go past 745 because, and we knew, I knew we could cover all the material in an hour right. and a half. And we right. did. So there was no reason to just stay on and banter and be like, oh, well, what about this? What about that? I could do that tomorrow. Right. Let's get done what we have to get done. And during that time, that 6.15 to 7.45, I was in my office. So my boundary, and my family understands this as well, because we formed them together, was, hey, dad's working. Right. Right? He's working. Alice is working. And we're going to go do our thing. But we know that that that, that boundary exists. And then at 7.45, boundary switched. Phone goes away. Email goes off. Now it's family time. That's awesome. Yeah. Have you bumped into like Dan Sullivan or any of that? Um, he, he's I'm, talked I'm, about, you know, having, having free days and focus days and buffer days. And, yes. And in the, you shall not pass, right? You know, right. the idea of if it's a free day and you plan those first to rejuvenate yourself, that's not work email. It's not a work book. It's, right. it's your family or it's the things that you enjoy doing. It's the hiking, it's the climbing. And it's not like, you know, we're so tempted to just sort of pull up the phone and you're with your family, but you're not really because you get that one email that happened to me in like Florida and, you know, on the beach with the pool, the kids are playing. And I, and I checked and got the one email and it, it was stupid. It's some vendors. It didn't, it was the most innocuous thing, but it made me so mad. And like the whole rest of the day, I was like thinking about it. Yeah. It's like, just don't do that, but separate to your point boundaries. It sounds like a real, it'll be a really good talk. So that's in, in Atlanta. Yeah, it is. And, and I, I experienced that same thing. My daughter, when she was 17, it was the first time much to my chagrin and embarrassment. First time ever I had not taken my laptop on vacation. And I told my team, I was turning off my email on my phone. So yeah. day two, she was 17 at the time. She's 19 now comes to me and says, dad, thanks for not bringing your laptop on vacation. And wow. so I appreciated that. She I noticed. Said, yeah. And I said, well, I said, you know, I appreciate that. But I always worked before you woke up. <laughs> and then right. she got me when she said yes. But then you would spend the rest of the day thinking about what you worked on. Hmm. And so they knew. They knew. Dad was there, but not fully there. Like he wasn't present. And so, again, I just... I'm sure there'll be people who read this and say, this is a pipe dream. You don't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been, I've been in the, the, the client side. I worked for McAfee. I worked for BMC software. Sure. If I could do those years over again, I would, I wouldn't change that. I learned more from those two organizations and my managers and my colleagues, which has enabled me to do what I do now. So those were great experiences and I still keep in touch with a lot of them. Oh, cool. Um, but I think the way I did it, would be fundamentally different. And what I have found in this role, I am so much more highly productive and my work product is better because right. I have those boundaries. 
Totally. So it'll be fun. We'll see. And that comes out next year, right? Yes. Hopefully spring. Uh, Right now I'm targeting March, maybe April, working with uh, a a good, good longtime colleague and dear friend who's going to be my copy editor. So she'll be able to take my mental something on paper and turn (laughs) it into something glorious, hopefully. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, really cool. We'll have to have you come back and give an update, and that would be great. Yeah, I would talk love. talk about Uganda. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to talk to you about that offline. But uh, this has been awesome. I don't know if you looked at the clock, but time just warped by. No, I saw that. I'm like, holy cow, where did this go? <laughs> I know, and and uh, yeah, that's that's a good sign that you know this conversation that matters and things that it's fun to talk about. And yeah, and you know, thank you so much for coming on here and just you know. Give my brain a stir. I've got pages and pages of uh, some great oh, wow. notes here. You know, I've, I've learned so much from this little conversation. Well, I appreciate you having me. Would I would always welcome to uh, continue conversation offline. It doesn't always have to be a show. I've really enjoyed getting yeah, yeah. to know you. And, um, you know, I just appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit what's in this head of mine. Absolutely. No, it's good. It's all gold in there. Just open up gold mine all inside. Wow. There. I, the check's on its way. Thanks. Oh yeah. <laughs> hey, woo. The first check. Um, well, this is, this is great, man. So thank you again. And so everyone listening, you know, if you learn something from this and, and there's no way you couldn't have uh, guarantee, I bet you money on that. Uh, then share it with someone, get that message to someone else. So it's not just, you know, you in that silo learning something new. But I share that with someone else. And and we will catch you all next time. So this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. See you guys. Bye.